Hello and welcome to episode 255 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Vienna, Virginia is Ben Olson. And uh, I have Kyle McEntee from Law School Transparency. Kyle, where are you? I am in uh, Cary, North Carolina. Cary, North Carolina. Yeah, just outside of Raleigh. Okay. Cool. We're going to interview Kyle about everything that's going on at Law School Transparency. We also, uh, if we have time, we're going to get to a listener-made data visualization. Uh, One of our listeners made a data visualization about ABA 509 reports. I have a feeling Kyle might have some interest in that as well. Um, If we have time after that, we'll get to a logical reasoning question. This show will air on Monday, July 20th which means you have about a month to sign up for the October LSAT. Uh, It also means you have about a month to get ready for the August LSAT Flex testing week, which starts on Saturday, August 29th. So we're in a little bit of a lull here. It feels kind of strange to say that, Ben. We used to have tests four times a year, and now we have so many tests that it's like, oh, it's a whole month before there's a deadline for anything. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was weird. It seems like everything was back to back with April, well, which became May. And no, no. Was there an April flex? Now you can't even remember. It just seems like there's been so much coming at us. Was there even in April? I don't remember April. Well, so there was March and April, <laughs> and they those were canceled. Oh, I mean the month. I don't remember the month. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was. <laughs> No, there was no April. (laughs) Are you guys experiencing the time acceleration? Yes. I can't believe how fast everything is going. It's like, it's killing me. It's coming at me. Like, it's always bedtime. It's like, I I just, I look up and it's like, oh, it's 11 p.m. and I'm like exhausted every single day, even though I'm not doing anything. It's the weirdest thing. I Hmm. I don't know. And the month, the days, are just coming at me. The weeks are coming at me. It just seems like everything is going faster. Kyle believes me. I don't think Ben believes me. Well, no, I actually, I was perplexed because I, I kind of felt the same way, but I just kind of assumed that it was because I was getting older. I was like, geez, I guess every year is just like faster, which is true. Right. But you're saying like, this is it, more it so because No, I was thinking the something. same thing. Like it's, well, it's because you're getting older. And so time goes faster when you get older, but it can't just be that. Because it's it's a it's especially accelerated. I feel like right now in COVID. When when do you think that really started for experiencing it within COVID? Because I think for me it was like the first week of June through now has been just blistering fast. I don't know if I noticed like a discrete start to it. I just have been I just have been for sure noticing it late lately. I feel like the first couple of weeks of quarantine were kind of novel. It was also rainy here in LA, and so it was just kind of nice to be holed up inside, and you know it was like mm-hmm. super quiet out, and it was calming and everything. And now it's like, even though I don't have that much going on, it, just the days and weeks and months are flying by. I don't. It's strange. Hmm. Anyway, you can email the show. Uh, tell us about the time dilation of COVID. Uh, that's help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, if you want to weigh in on on that important debate, leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe, do all that stuff. I know it's annoying when we ask, but it really helps. Uh, it's the only way people find us is uh, by rating and reviewing and subscribing and doing all that stupid stuff. 
All right, let's uh, dive into this interview. Kyle is the executive director and co-founder of Law School Transparency. He's an attorney, public policy expert, and technologist. Kyle, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to sit here for an hour and just talk. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, we can talk about what. <laughs> well, we'll turn it over to you <laughs> and just go grab some yeah, food. We could use a we could use a day off. Awesome. So. Um, Kyle, tell us about the founding of Law School Transparency. Yeah, so I founded the organization back in 2009 with a friend of mine and classmate, Patrick Lynch. So we figured out that law schools were being deceptive about their job statistics and decided that that was unacceptable and that it should stop. Uh, came to this realization actually a few years before, about a year about 15 months before we actually founded the organization, which was July 2009, um, I was applying to law school during the 2007-2008 cycle. And I was choosing among three you know, great schools. Uh, it was University of Texas, Cornell, and Vanderbilt. And I ultimately went to Vanderbilt uh, in part because of the employment information that they were providing. Um, they provided this list of where all graduates went to go work. And me not knowing any lawyers and having no real idea of what I was doing, uh, I was just like seeking information everywhere I could. And this information to me was like a godsend. It, it's, it, it showed me what was possible from the school. And I didn't want to work in New York, big law. Um, I was you know, wanting to work in the Southeast, uh, Vanderbilt in Tennessee, of course. And then I'm from North Carolina and it really just, it, it helped me get comfortable. And so Patrick, who was a year ahead of me, uh, he's like, why don't we get other schools to do this? I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do that. And so we started to look into it and, you know, we started to figure out that law schools had a lot of data that they weren't sharing and that the data did not match the top line numbers that they were sharing. So they'd say 99% of our graduates are employed and the median salary is $160,000. <laughs> Well, it turns out that, yes, 99% are employed, but any job counts as employed because they use this thing we call the basic employment rate uh, that, did not, that did not distinguish between long-term and short-term jobs, full-time and part-time, school-funded and not school-funded. Uh, and then the salaries, you know, at some schools, maybe it really was a median salary of $160,000, which at the time was the big city market rate for big firms. Um, but often uh, it was a much smaller slice of the class than you'd expect. So law schools would say, you know, our median salary is 160, but the response rate is 15%. And so really it's a reflection of less than a 10th of the class. <laughs> but to make that worse, they didn't even disclose that response rate. You had to either find it somewhere else or it just wasn't available anywhere. And what this did was fundamentally pump up the beliefs about the value proposition of law schools. We recognized this, realized we needed to pop the bubble by increasing transparency and found an organization called Law School Transparency because you know exactly what we're after. Hmm. How did you discover this discrepancy? We just started, you know, I, I've, I've been thinking about that question for a few years now because I don't remember, to be honest. It's all such a blur. You know, it was, we founded the organization during law school. 
So, you know, we had lots of other things pulling on our mind from, you know, socializing, which is a big thing, you know, in law school, but also, you know, the whole schoolwork thing. Uh, but I think it was just thumbing through reports. So we wrote a white paper before we, like we found the organization, then we wrote a white paper and we used this white paper to describe the problem. And I think it was in writing this white paper that we started to really figure out just how problematic things were. Because we started off by just wondering, how do we get schools to do what Vanderbilt was doing, which is to release this cool list. Uh, and then realized, so, so the question then was, okay, what data do schools have? And then we looked at the data that were on the surveys, or the, the questions on the surveys, and we're like, hey, this is not the data that actually end up in our hands. So that must have been how we figured it out. Can you like give us a tour of law school transparency, or can you take us to the stuff that you think is most important for our listeners to, to know yeah. about? No, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So, you know, we were founded in response to a very specific problem, right? Law schools were not being honest with their job statistics, and it was inflating enrollment and inflating prices. And so, you know, our mission fundamentally is about more than transparency though. It's our mission is to make entry to the legal profession more transparent, affordable, and fair. And affordability and fairness uh, are, are really important to me as, you know, the executive director, um, but more fundamentally as, as a person, right? The cost of law school has all kinds of impact on public life, uh, whether it's who goes to school and becomes, you know, a politician or um, who delivers justice to the, the droves of the population that just do not have access to justice. And so it's, it's this interesting inflection point, uh, law school is, where you can make changes at this interval where people, everyone goes through, and then you know, the, the long-term implications are, are pretty large. And so what we're really trying to do is help people make smarter choices and then making those choices also better at the same time. Uh, and by that, I mean making it more affordable, making it higher quality, ensuring that schools are more responsible in how they make their decisions, both on enrollment size and enrollment composition. Uh, and then also looking down to, you know, how do schools make choices about how much to charge people? And so our work really organizes into two fundamental buckets. Uh, on the one hand, we do policy work related to that mission. Uh, and on the other, we provide a, a suite of tools to people who uh, have an interest in the state of legal education. And that means prospective law students. That means journalists. That means the people who advise pre-law students and some people like you um, or people like pre-law advisors or people who run pipeline programs. Uh, and then also decision makers um, within law schools and at the regulatory bodies. Information really is powerful, um, especially when it's framed properly um, and informatively. And, you know, we've been able to have success by focusing on data and focusing on the ethics of a self-regulating profession and the ethics of, you know, how, how to be good gate, gatekeepers, 
uh, which is something I think the ABA section of legal education, the accreditors of law schools have really done a great job of focusing on over the last 10 years, whereas they didn't really do that in the prior 10 years. Talk a little bit more about that. What was going on 15 years ago versus what's going on today? Yeah, I, I think a lot of the decisions that were being made were more about what's good for law schools, which is really just an act of agency capture. And whenever an agency is captured by those it's supposed to regulate, it doesn't do a good job. And over the last 10 or so years, there's been uh, an influx of voices. Uh, LST is not the only you know, series of voices um, in this. There's been some law, law professors who have done you know, immeasurable work on this including Debbie Merritt, Paul Campos, Brian Tamanaha, you know, among others. But we've seen a shift in the student focus of accreditation. And this is why we now have the 509 reports, because of advocacy related to you know, the lack of transparency and the you know, predatory marketing that schools were doing, and then ultimately the predatory emissions that schools were doing. And now there have been changes to, to how the ABA regulates predatory emissions, uh, both through the standard 501, which says, you know, don't enroll people who do not appear capable of completing school or passing the bar exam, to standard 316, which is the new bar pass standard, which says that if you know, a school does not get three quarters of their graduates to pass the bar within two years, they shouldn't uh, be fully, or shouldn't be accredited, or at least should be penalized in some way. What it all comes down to, though, is a much more pro-consumer bent of the ABA, and that is going to have very long-term positive impact on schools and the profession, and most importantly, the people we serve, our our clients, whether the clients, the public, or the clients, the the individual, or the company that lawyers are representing. We never stop complaining about law schools on this podcast. We've We've been doing the podcast for, what, Ben, six years? Yeah, six years. I personally have become increasingly horrified by the potential for young people to ruin their financial future by borrowing a quarter of a million dollars to go to law school and then possibly never practice. It's fairly shocking for me to hear you say that things are better now than they were before. I can't imagine how they must have been. Yeah. I mean, some things are better, some things are worse, right? So the regulation of law schools has improved. So this is putting some schools out of business that had no business, you know, teaching future lawyers. It's also making schools focus a little bit more on the right things but there's still this really big problem with law school costs. And it is really difficult to solve that problem. So a few years ago, back in 2018, I was you know, just reflecting on the previous you know, nine, eight or nine years of our work. And I was you know, enthusiastic about some of our successes and really disappointed in some of the places where we haven't made the kind of impact that I want to want to have. Um, and fundamentally, those the, it's on cost and it's on diversity. And so what we did was we 
went to the drawing board and said, and, and we called this our Blue Sky Initiative, and we did it in partnership with the Iowa State Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. And we said, what are the small and big things we can do to impact how much people pay for law school. And the idea is that if we can make law school more affordable and have, um, and have law school pricing be more equitable, then uh, we could also simultaneously help diversify the profession and improve access to justice. So from this process of you know, focus groups, interviews, Lots of reflection, literature reviews, you know, analyzing data. We came to two conclusions. Um, one was that, well, two conclusions is not the right way to put it. We we came up with the vision. So we wanted we had a vision for lower tuition, uh, less financially stressed graduates, and a more diverse profession. And we noticed that there were two structural challenges that stood in the way of achieving that vision. And so we released a report a few months back uh, that was the culmination of this work uh, that really is a blueprint for how we see our work over the next few years, uh, and specifically the next five years because it's our 2025 vision. And what it comes down to is there are two structural uh, barriers to that vision. Uh, One is related to regulation, and that's ABA regulation, uh, and then more broadly speaking, the education department, state regulators, whether it's uh, state regulators, uh, like the higher education regulators and commissions, or it's the state courts. Um, and then also the incentives uh, are fundamentally malaligned in, in legal education because there's such a focus on the elephant in the room, which is the U.S. News and World Report. And so we figured that we could not make the impact that we want on access, affordability, and innovation um, if we did not change these, these structural problems. And that's, that's where we see our next five years is figuring out how do we, how do we make these changes uh, to legal education um, at the fundamental level to have an impact on what schools actually do and then how that affects students who are actually going to those schools. So that way people can maybe eventually not say things are so bad for law schools. But they are, you know, very bad in very many ways right now. So you you mentioned two specific things. You said, hey, it's the regulators or the regulations, which are made and enforced by a variety of groups, right? You have the ABA, you have the Department of Education, and you have state and local state bar associations, right? Don't they play some role? Uh, In in some states, yeah. If it's a if it's a yeah, in, in some states. not a, If it's not a volunteer, if it's a mandatory bar, then there is some overlap there. Okay. So change the regulations and two, change the incentives, which specifically refers to the U.S. News and World Report rankings that everybody's trying to get up on. Exactly. Like, what 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 specifically would you like to see? What, what would be different? Would the U.S. News and World Report ranking, for example, go away? And do you think that's feasible? <laughs> so in that report, we actually did a uh, analysis on how much it would cost to buy U.S. News, uh, and it's actually not as expensive as you might think. I think our final estimate was in the twenty-five to thirty-five, thir- twenty-five to thirty million dollar range, and schools spend more than that every year on gaming the rankings. 
But, you know, that's not really realistic. Um, I don't have that kind of money. Um, we are not the most financially sustainable organization. Uh, we're constantly trying to figure out how, how, how to you know, pay my salary and pay our other expenses. But what we need to do is focus on mitigating the influence of U.S. news and their impact. So it's not necessarily eliminating them. It's how do we improve what they're doing and then how do we provide other incentives that students and schools can use, uh, tools basically that students and schools can use that will have them focusing a little less on U.S. news? I guess I'm a little confused because it seems like if you, like let's say, for example, we were able to get that money and we were to buy them and say, aha, goodbye, it's fulfilling some sort of need, right? So on some level, wouldn't someone else just come in and try to fulfill that need? And uh, stepping back, I'm actually curious. I do see the U.S. News and World Report ranking system being like problematic, but can you walk us through why you think that creates the negative incentives? Like what incentives, how do you get from A to E to the point where, oh, this is what's making law school tuition higher. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So <laughs> there's a lot to unpack with those questions. So I'll, I'll start with the easy question, which is, wouldn't something just fill the gap afterwards? And the answer is yes. If U.S. News went away tomorrow, the gap would be filled. But the idea is that it would likely be filled by a rush of competitors, and no single one would have the overt impact that U.S. News has on schools. Um, that's the theory, at least. You know, that's, it's untested. It's an empirical question. So, you know, we, if that were to happen, it may make more sense to, if we're buying the rankings, to just instead, you know, use, use their IP and actually, you know, create a new system within their old system. Now, what is wrong with their system? Um, so U.S. News uh, is an ordinal ranking, right? So one is better than two, two is better than three, three is better than 30. They put every school on the same list, right? So it's comparing, you know, number 70 might be in California and number 71 might be in New York. <laughs> and so the message it's giving to a student is that the number 70 school is better than number 71 and even if you want to work in the state where number 71 is, you should still go to 70 because it's better. Um, now, you know, people are more sophisticated than that and can see, you know, maybe mm. 70 and 71 are really close. Maybe they are. I don't maybe, know. Right. But when we're <laughs> looking at like, say, 60 and 90, um, if they had that ability with 70 and 71, they're much less likely to have that ability at 60 and, and 90. Um, and so they end up making these bad choices, right? And in some cases, spend more money because of it, uh, because there is a bit of a relationship between a school's ranking and its cost. It's it's not as uh, strong of a correlation as you might expect. It is at the very top, but it's it's a flatter curve in the middle. But it, it, it has people focusing on the wrong things. For each individual student, it's a strong relationship between cost and ranking because of merit-based scholarships. Right. When they're charging every student, and that's the one thing, I haven't heard you talk about this yet, but from my perspective, it seems like the merit-based scholarships are a big part of the problem here. When the schools are going to charge everybody a different price, 
then yeah, it costs you, you know, if you can barely squeak into a school mm-hmm. that's ranked 60th, you're going to pay full price to go there, but you could probably go to that school that's ranked 90th for free. And then people make really dumb decisions to go to the school that's ranked 60th and pay full price when they could have gone for free at the school that's ranked 90th. Right, right. Absolutely. So, you know, the zoomed out, we've got a distributional problem with how the rankings distribute schools, right? And that it's, it's putting all the schools in the same scale. And then within schools, it's also a distributional issue uh, on, on prices. So, and th- this goes, I think, to Ben's question of like the methodology. Why, why, is, why is that situation, as you described, with students you know, who barely squeak into 60 paying full price and students at 90 you know, getting the full ride? And it comes down to the methodology of U.S. News. Uh, maybe not exclusively, but it's enormous. Um, and so the rankings have you know, a variety of components. Um, and you know one is you know what's your median LSAT, what's your median GPA, and so schools have figured out that this is where they can get some good bang for their buck, where if they can just change how much people pay and end up with the same amount of tuition revenue, they can do better on the rankings um, than if they didn't do that, um, and so this is where you have a scenario where someone might pay twice as much for law school uh, if they have one a score an LSAT score one point below the median than it, compared to if they had a score at the median. Um, and th- this is just you know one of the many incentives that the rankings provide. Uh, another another big one is the expenditures per student metrics. Uh, this looks at how much money a school is spending per enrolled student. And the idea here is that it's an educational quality proxy. Uh, the more money you spend, the better the school you are. Now, that might have made sense as a proxy 20 or 30 years ago, but we know a lot better now. Uh, we we have build access a to better giant data. building in downtown San Francisco. Right. It makes you look awesome on your expenditure metric. Right. Or, you know, a faculty that, you know, each each person teaches one class and is inaccessible. Is that actually better than, you know, a third a, faculty, the, a third of the number of faculty who actually have more student engagement? Of course not, right? And so there's like a literal incentive to burn money in the middle of Blackacre, right? Uh, that's, you are rewarded on the rankings for that. Um, just like you're rewarded for trying to massage your medians for your LSAT and your GPA. And there's actually all kinds of additional consequences to that uh, median massaging, most notably for people of color and women who pay and borrow more for law school than their white and their male counterparts. Uh, this, so this, this price inequity is you know, unbelievably perverse. And it stems from the fact that the people who are top performing on the LSAT are white males. Uh, and it's not lost on me. That is three of us on this call who are three, three white males. Um, but what this does is when, for example, a school is going to its wait list and it, you know, it's trying to you know, maintain its median, they are looking at that LSAT score. So let's say the school is a 165 median, it's their, their target, and they're you know, really close to getting it. And so they just need a few more 165s 
uh, to, to make that happen. Well, it turns out that, you know, if you're white, you're more likely to have that 165. If you're male, you're more likely to have that 165 because women score two points on average worse uh, on the LSAT uh, than their male counterparts and the distribution curve is, is shifted left. And so uh, as a result, uh, schools end up biasing their, a lot of their choices based on gender. And this wasn't happening as much back around 2000 when parity was first reached on gender, when women and men were roughly equal. Um, but over the years, uh, as schools have become more sophisticated at gaming the rankings, what they have now done is the top 50 schools by job outcomes are now more male-dominated, and the bottom 50 schools by job outcomes are more, uh, are, are more women. And so what this, and, and the people at the top 50 schools by job outcomes are, in some cases, more than twice as likely to get a job as a lawyer than at the other schools. Uh, and probably on average, that's about right. Uh, and so not only are they paying more for law school, borrowing more for law school, um, both across the board and within law schools, they're paying more for worse outcomes. And this also applies for uh, blacks and Hispanics. And this is largely a consequence of, you know, something that seems as innocuous as let's admit a few extra 165s this year. So as a potential solution, what if, I mean, to solve the problem within law schools, what if we ban merit-based scholarships and make the schools actually charge everybody the same price. They have this nominal tuition that you know only the lowest performing students in each school are actually going to pay. Some of these schools are giving merit-based scholarships to ninety percent of their class. You know, half the class is there on a full ride. Forty percent of the class is getting some kind of a discount, and then you got ten percent of people that are footing the bill for this entire school. What can we do? That is that a is that a possible thing that you could get the American Bar Association to just say, "Hey, this isn't fair that we offer these merit based scholarships. Let's actually charge people what we say we're going to charge them." It is it is on the table. Um, this is why we look at everything through the lens of both accreditation and regulation and the incentives because I think I think there's really good reason to want to ban these practices or at minimum ensure that the the pricing is more equitable. Um, maybe it's not completely equal, but or maybe it is. You know, I I, I lean towards um, towards you know a, a single price. Uh, whether that's possible on the uh, from an antitrust perspective, I know that's an open question, and that's beyond my expertise. Um, but there's other ways also to address the. Uh, the issues of price inequity. Um, so we've got proposals right now before the ABA uh, that looks at increasing transparency related to this. So what we want to see is something called a, a frequency distribution table uh, for how much people pay, and then breaking that out both by class uh, as well as by gender, as well as by um, race and ethnicity. And I know you've talked in this show before about the NALP bimodal distribution and so you can make a distribution curve like that salary distribution chart from a frequency distribution table. And so what we want is frequency distribution tables for how much people pay for tuition and how much they borrow. So that way we can create those charts because we think visualizing that will actually make law school faculty and their administrators confront the fact 
that their pricing structure is actually happening at the school level with this. And we've had success with this in the past. So when we first started the organization, we said, you know, on average, people are not getting law jobs at the same rate that schools are claiming. And everyone's like, yeah, 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 but not at my school. And until the data were actually publicly available in the 509s, and that's a big reason we push for those, until those data were available, people were in denial. And the same thing happened with conditional scholarships. Oh, yeah, yeah, conditional scholarships are a problem, but that's not happening at our school. Oh, well, it turns out that it is. And then as a result, once there was heightened transparency around that, we saw a, a sharp reduction in the number of schools offering those, as well as an increase in the people percentage of people who are actually keeping their conditional scholarships. And so I think transparency can have a really big impact here. But then there's another stand, two other standards in uh, that the ABA could start to enforce using those data. So uh, basically, law schools under standard 205 and 206 have to create a, uh, an environment that is um, equitable based on race and gender, uh, as, well, as well as other uh, protected classes. And in my opinion, a school that charges um, the black students on average significantly more than their white students is not complying with that standard. Um, and so I'd like to see the ABA, and we've asked them to start enforcing that standard in that way. And there is some interest in it, but we need the data first to actually that do that. That would be amazing on the 509 reports. I mean, they love to talk about diversity and they love to show off you know, their right. people of color that they have admitted. But if they were also forced to show that those people of color pay more to go there mm-hmm. or graduate with more debt or have worse job outcomes. Yeah, it forces them to defend the situation. Well, our passage rates, is that already tracked maybe the bar passage rates for based on ethnicity i feel like it is but not at the aba level there are there's state level data um Hmm. that doesn't break it out by school and not all states release those data but then you got to break it out by school like you're saying because everybody thinks their school is special and hey i work here and it's great and they don't realize what their own administration is doing yeah, uh, I think it gets more complicated with questions as to whether that should be because I think a lot of those data could be misused by um, by racists. Uh, I think we've seen that uh, happen in other mm. other places with race based data, and for the same reasons why it probably wouldn't be a good idea to break out admissions by by LSAT uh, within the school. But I, I think there could be a live debate on that, and I. I can see someone coming down on either side. Hmm. I mean, I have to step back and just say, well, okay, I guess it could be misused, but at the same time, information is information, right? And you can prompt questions like, well, what, why is that? What can we do about that? How should we address it? Right. I think, yeah, I think that's a fair take. Yeah. From a consumer perspective, I mean, we never stop, on the show advising people to just not pay for law school. Um, the way the game works now, if you make the decision that you're going to go to school on a full ride, you can go to school on a full ride. You just turn down those higher ranked schools that want to charge you full price. You go to a slightly lower ranked regional school. Probably there's no difference by the way, between the school ranked 90th and the school ranked 60th. There's no practical difference. Um, certainly no educational difference between those schools you go to the lower ranked school, that school is happy to have you because you're going to 
support their medians like you're talking about. And then that school lets you go for free. So, I mean, from a consumer education standpoint, that I feel like that's what we're trying to do is to just convince people like, hey, this is the game. It's a bad game and they should definitely fix the game. But at least from one individual student's perspective, if you just make the decision that you're not paying tuition for law school, then you've at least solved it for yourself. Right. And, th- and this is the, the thing we're trying to do as an organization. I, I distinguished earlier between our policy work and our provision of tools to pre-law students and others. And you know we want to remake the system, but at the same time, we want to democratize access to information so that way the only people who you know, know that you can negotiate scholarships are not just the people who have the wealthy consultants that they've hired which is why I think you know a free podcast like this that is continuously encouraging them to look at themselves as part of a transaction. That um, I think that's I think that's a huge benefit towards that. Um, you know, we one of our one of our tools is the LST reports. So we take all the data that we forced out in our advocacy over the years and we organize it uh, in a way that's significantly more user-friendly than the ABA data. So we take their you know, raw data and we turn it into information. Can, uh, I, I, the, can I put you on the spot, actually? Um, yeah. If you'd like, you could share your screen with, with us in Zoom and like give us a tour of some of these resources. Because I have a feeling you've got lots of stuff that we're not even aware <laughs> of, shamefully. And we should you know, be pointing students and listeners to this, these resources. Yeah. All right. So this is lstreports.com. So this is, um, our primary means of getting information to pre-law students about the statistical outcomes at, at law schools. Uh, it's based on the data that we have forced out over time, both through the ABA uh, and those are the required data under, um, under Standard 509 and the 509 reports, as well as the data that we have uh, convinced schools to share voluntarily. And that relates largely to salary statistics and some other uh, employment data. So this site is about to change pretty drastically. I am in the middle right now of redesigning this website, as well as a, a new companion website to it. Um, and that this tool is very much an intermediate to expert level tool. And if our goal is to help people from all backgrounds with all, all, you know, everyone to, we need to be focused more on reaching everyone where they are. That said, you know, the fundamentals of this are going to stay the same because when I ask people for feedback, it's actually pretty difficult because they're like, Oh no, we love it. And say, okay, well, you know, tell us some criticism. Um, <laughs> I'll do that. Don't worry. Let's see. Let's see good. what you got. Yeah, I want the criticism. <laughs> like, I crave that criticism. Okay, so you're talking to the right guys. Good. So this site is separated into. I, the, we operate on a very fundamental premise that what matters most is geography. Um, <laughs> Shocker. I mean, like, yeah. right? <laughs> no shit. But <laughs> exactly. So like, so we do a, so our primary sorting mechanism, let's say we want to work in Texas. So we click on Texas and what this does is it brings up all the schools that have some kind of relation to Texas. That means either that they are in the States or they, um, place enough graduates in the States. So here we have Tulane, you know, 
they have 17.7% of their um, graduates employed in Texas from the class of 2019. That gets them on the report. Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, LSU, Arkansas, Alabama, BYU, all these schools end up on here. So then the primary sorting mechanism we have once you know we've reduced the number of schools you should consider is there this, this employment score. And so this employment score, it's trying to provide something that's kind of a simple, easy to grasp number that people can get their, their hierarchies in mind. Um, and that's not because like everything should be hierarchical, but it's because in a world where people are focused on ordinal rankings, you have to provide them some ease of access. And so this is our means of doing that. So the employment score looks at, it's essentially a proxy for successful entry to being a lawyer. And so what we do here is we show over the last nine years how the schools have trended. And you can see most schools actually are trending up because there's was a lot of pressure for schools to get smaller. So Oklahoma, for example, 60% of their graduates got law jobs in 2011. Um, they got smaller from market pressure, and now they're doing a lot better. So we have different tabs on the state report, so you can look at um, breaking things down by job type. Uh, you can figure out who has good law firm, pla- large law firm placement, who's doing a lot of placement in public service. Uh, we can we see the basic tab again one more time? Sorry. Yeah. So total enrollment. Number of graduates, total enrollment. That's uh, 1L enrollments. Oh, okay. Should clarify that. That's a good, I'm going to make a note. So if someone were, were to come here, it sounds like what you're telling them is say, hey, look, decide where you want to practice, or at least maybe a couple places if you're not sure yet, but pick the two places that you want to end up, two states really, right? And um, Or a state, and then click on that state, and then... Maybe start by sorting by employment score. It seems like if they actually know what kind of job they want to get, if they want to get into big law, then they need to click on jobs and figure out which ones actually deliver that. That's true, but very few people have that sense. Yeah. So, so what are what should they be looking for when they're looking at these schools? So it's th- this is something I struggled with back in 2014. So I was on our site thinking, you know, we have all these data, that's great. But if I were back in my shoes when I was applying to law school, trying to sort through the data, I wouldn't have known how to make heads or tails of it. And I realized that the problem was that I didn't understand what lawyers did. And so that's when we started our podcast, I Am The Law, which profiles lawyers all around the country to help them under, people understand what the practice of law is actually like. So each episode is a different interview with a lawyer about you know, what their job is like. They're, they're less like free-ranging conversations like this and more like narrowly focused 20 to 30-minute episodes. But the idea is helping people understand you know, what practice areas and practice settings might be a good fit. So that way when I look at the data, I can know what schools actually have a track record in those types of jobs. And so, you know, we have these tabs up here, but then there's also a ton more data available like on the school profile. So let's pick the University of Texas. So we start off with the same fundamentals, like here's the employment score, 
here's underemployment, which is basically, are you in a short-term job? Are you in a job that doesn't require, or or like a non-professional job? Are you in a job that is part-time? Bar passage rate info, and then cost info. Um, And then we help people to start digging into more data on the jobs. So you can see large firm performance, uh, public service. Down here, the credentials, and you can click through and see how all this good stuff works. Then same by employer type. So th- like this right here, these data are just from the ABA, but this helps you conceptualize it a little more easily, I think. And then this is a school that does not disclose extra information. What can we find one that does? Are you putting scholarship information in? I, d- I haven't seen it yet on any of these reports. That seems like it's yes. something that could be useful. Yes, I'll show you that in a second. So okay, cool. here we, um, this is UNC Chapel Hill. They, they publish extra information um, at our request, which is, which is great. So you can break down like business jobs. Okay, of the people who are working in business in that category, how many of them are in jobs that require bar passage versus JD Advantage? Um, and I know from the episode you all did with Ben Barton that you talked about the, the, the problems with that category of JD Advantage. Um, one additional statistic for your listeners that I would add is that people who are in bar-required jobs, about 9% of them are still looking for another job, um, <laughs> as I've reported. But in the JD Advantage job, it's about 40%. So you're more than four times as likely to be looking for another job if you're in that JD Advantage category. And that's I because wish we could get rid of that name. That's just such a bullshit name to begin with, JD Advantage. <laughs> of course, it's you get an advantage. Like, what is not an advantage Like for having an understanding of how the law works? It should say bar passage required and bar passage not required. Yeah. I mean, I, instead I of JD advantage, it should say JD optional, <laughs> like JD not necessary. So there used to yeah. be a category before JD advantage that was JD preferred. So this looked at <laughs> the preference from the employer's perspective, whereas the advantage looks at it from the student's perspective. This, oh my goodness, that's even worse. I actually think it's better because... Oh, it's better? It seems like at least the other one would require the employer to say, hey, we would prefer you to have a JD, whereas... No, no, they would. That, that's why it's better, though, right? So, like, the... And, and so not only do they have to prefer the JD, but they had to typically hire people who did not have JDs for that position for it to count as JD preferred. So, for example, a paralegal... Currently, under the JD Advantage regime, it counts as JD Advantage because, of course, going to law school helps you be a better paralegal. It's not a good use of your money or time, but it helps. But it, under the JD Preferred regime, it looked at would the employer prefer that you have a JD to be a paralegal? And the answer in that is probably no, right? Unless you've got some kind of yeah. <laughs> evil lawyer. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're saying the same yeah. thing. JD preferred was better. Yes. It was more restricted. But it's so much easier just to say, hey, do you have to have a JD or not? Because the real question is, I paid a lot of money for this. Do I need it? If I don't, what? Yeah. No, I agree. And you know, there are some cool jobs that are JD Advantage. My job is JD Advantage. Um, I'm not sure LSAT prep would be. I have to think about that one. Definitely um, not. Uh, uh, people <laughs> think that we're better at teaching LSAT because we have JDs. But we didn't learn anything in law school that helps us to be better right. LSAT teachers. It's, so, it's like yeah, 0%. So you'd probably be a professional here. And so it's not that there aren't good jobs. It's that 
generally speaking, people go to law school to be a lawyer, um, at least for their first job. So it's really important to focus on that bar required number. So to answer your question, though, about finance, well, I'll get to that in a second. So there's some other interesting things here, like job search. Yeah, take so, your time. This is really helpful. So don't, don't feel great. rushed at all. So this uh, like job offer timing, this shows when people got the job offer. So at UNC, 65% or 66% of graduates got their offer for the job that they had as of March 15th um, before graduation. Um, that... There's an error there. See, this is the problem. They're, the data are ever shifting, and when they shift, it ends up causing an issue. So actually, this unknown timing should say after graduation. And this is why we need to you know, give, give uh, the site a little bit of a refresh. So also, there's information on location here. Um, so to show mostly that location really, really matters. And then this shows the density of where people from UNC actually go to to work. So you can see it's... Yeah, so can you give an example of verbally, just because uh, a lot of people are going to be listening, right, via the podcast as opposed to on YouTube. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at um, where you're placed. Yeah, so we are... So we're on the LST reports. We're in a profile page for UNC on a page called Jobs Location. And we're looking right now at a map of the United States. Uh, and each state is a different color based mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. the number of lawyers, not lawyers, the number of graduates who want to go work in that state for the That's class of 2018. That's super cool. I love that. Yeah, that is cool. And so you see here, North Carolina is the darkest blue because that's where the most density is. And then you see a little bit more uh, or less density in New York, Pennsylvania, Florida, and D.C., uh, because they're placing you know, some graduates there, but not a ton. And then you see um, some, some lighter blue in other states. Um, but on average, you can see UNC is very much regional. I mean, it's, it's hyper like North Carolina for one. So if you want to work in North Carolina, UNC really could be a good option for you. Uh, but if you want to go work in Utah, you probably should not go to UNC. You should probably try to go to one of the Utah schools. Uh, yeah, even though UNC is ranked however many points higher in U.S. news, the truth is nobody in Utah has ever heard of those, you know, like there's not, there's not zero lawyers from UNC yeah. working in Utah. Yeah, exactly. So your ranking is higher, but your chances of getting a job there are essentially zero. For a couple different reasons. One, just people who go to school in North Carolina don't tend to want to try to go to Utah for work. So, right. so it's partial, partially, it's just if that's where you went to school, that's probably where you end up staying because you had ties to that area in the first place. But because that's true, then it's also true that there just aren't lawyers from UNC that tend to work in the West. And so if you if that was your plan, I'm going to go to US, UNC and then I'm going to go work out West. Well, okay, good luck because you're, you don't have an alumni network. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the ability to be on the ground and, you know, hustling for a job. I mean, go back to that stat, right? You said 65% of the school had a job before graduation. Yeah. What do you plan to so, do? Leave school? And <laughs> do, you, do you see the data dashboard? Is that up on now? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I've now gone to uh, data.lawschooltransparency.com, and I'm going to click on the Jobs tab and then the Job Search under here, and this shows when people got their job offer. And so we could see that, in 2018, 63% of people got it before graduation, 37% got it after graduation. 
And then on the next chart over, it looks at where people got their job, like job offer. And you could see here, most of the jobs people get are from networking, job postings, and on-campus interviews. The job postings that people see are usually posted by their career counselors who post jobs that are local and regional. Networking happens locally and regionally. On-campus interviews happen where, where it's a good bang for the buck for the firm that's coming to campus. And they're not going to go to UNC from Utah, right? And so you can see from this, a ton, almost all of the jobs come from places that you know, are related to geography. And people are getting their jobs before graduation, meaning it's at least two, two out of three are getting it before graduation, which means the work has been done while you're in school. Now, maybe some of that's summer, but a lot of it's also done during the school year. So all, all the reasons to really focus on geography when you're making your choices. Um, and then, you know, as, as you've pointed out, the, the data uh, show that, you know, you, oh, I don't know where I was going. Data show lots of things. <laughs> How's that for a big statement? Uh, okay, so looking at finances now. Hey, so I had one random, sorry to kind of tangent here for a half second, but when you, when you started this whole discussion, right, you started with a map. You're like, okay, hey, look, decide where you want to go to school, click on the state, and then you're going to get a list of schools. And what you've done here is you clicked on North Carolina and then you drilled into UNC, I think, right? Yep. And you've really unpacked these schools. For someone who doesn't know where to start, I mean, pick a state, right? Say, hey, look, this is where I want to end up. Go here. Find all of the schools that exist here. Probably sort by employment outcomes or something like right. that if you, if you really don't know where to start. And maybe at the very minimum, apply to 10 or 15 of these schools, if you, especially if you can get fee waivers, right? Because in the end, you're, you're going to make a decision, one, where you're going to end up, and two, what kind of offers are they going to give you? And you're not necessarily going to know, um, but here's a great list of regional schools. So many times I think people think, oh, I'm going to go to Boston or I'm going to go here, and I mention other schools in the area, and they're like, oh, I'd never go there. Like, really? Like, you don't just, do you realize how many schools are at your disposal? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised by the list here. It's pretty long. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so we actually have this tool that makes this a little easier. Um, and I mean, I, th I think the fact that you came back to that a second time to clarify for listeners, like, I see what you're doing and I appreciate that and I think it's really important. And I think it drives home my concern about the current state of our website, which is it is it's t it reaches people best when they don't have to have someone tell them what you just told the listeners, right? And that's what we have to rethink think how it is we're onboarding people within our system. And that's why we're going through our current redesign right now. We've actually got several focus groups this afternoon where we are going to talk to pre-law students and um, figure out, you know, where in the process do they have trouble? And then where do they get information in different stages in the process and try to address some of those gaps? Um, one of the things we're doing though is we're gonna. So this is the LST Wizard. So this is part of our pro package, which we currently charge for. Sometime this fall, one time, sometime this fall, we're gonna actually make this wizard free, because we think it's essential to mitigating that influence of U.S. news. We know that when people have access to data, that they actually are really good at ignoring U.S. news. 
Um, we've got lots of surveying to that effect. So it's a matter of reaching more people and reaching them sooner. But uh, so I, I think it's worth talking about this wizard though, because it does just kind of what the steps you walk through. So I'm, I filled this out for someone recently. Let's just do this. So just to clarify, you're at lstreports.com forward slash wizard? Yes. Forward slash and this, this is, is behind inside a of a paywall. What's it cost right now, Kyle? Uh, $75. Just one time. One time fee, yeah. And you get this as well yeah. as access to a psychometric assessment that uh, it's about 45 minutes long and the results end up being a report on uh, what practice areas and practice settings would be a good fit for your personality based mm-hmm. on uh, profile matching uh, to practicing attorneys who have found to be ser- uh, satisfied in their practice area and practice settings. Does the report ever come back? You wouldn't be satisfied in any yes. practice area? It does? I mean, yes. good, because if it doesn't, then it's bullshit. So. Exactly. No, it, 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 Your personality does not fit this. Go yeah. away. Uh, a friend of mine took it. She was interested in law school and then got all red, basically, which is all like really low scores. And she's like, I'm not going to give up my six-figure job. I'm just gonna stick. Stay, I'm, I'm just gonna stick it out and not go to law school because she realized her personality was not a good fit for the environments she thought they would. Oh be. yeah, thank God. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so seems like a good this wizard good. though. So this is it's a four step wizard with results. So I'm gonna. Which one of you wants to take it? I'll do it. That's fine. Okay. So let's start with the question of: Is it really important to you to work in a high prestige job? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, what uh, what states are you most interested in working in? Um, it could be none. You can Montana. Montana. <laughs> Actually, that's kind of sorry. I just can't imagine working there. Um, Virginia and California. Okay. Ooh. This is going to end up with a really long report. Um, that's okay. Oh, should we just do Virginia? No, we'll do it this way. I mean, this is this is a realistic way of looking at it. So the next question is, what kind of job do you want? And we ask you to prioritize it. So any lawyer job. Can you clarify? Lawyer jobs required to pass the bar. Okay, yeah. So that's a high priority. High priority, yep. okay. Then the next one is mm-hmm. any law firm job. So this is a practicing law in a private practice. Yeah, I'm just going to go high all the way here. Okay, large law firm. firm. Large firm, mm-hmm. Public service, low. <laughs> Uh, clerkship, mm, medium. Medium, okay. All right. Uh, this is for our type A listeners. Yeah, give me uh, an LSAT score and GPA. Okay. Uh, yeah, one. I saw the 169. That looks, well, let's go with 167. Okay. And a 3.5. Okay. And we'll apply as a non-underrepresented minority. Okay. Um, next we ask you, what do you want to pay? Um, so we're asking for a target debt and then, uh, we have this concept called education tax. So the target debt is just, you know, what do you want your, what do you hope that your monthly payment's going to be? Well, I'm hoping to go for free, so I'm going to have to say zero. Uh, okay. Got to be then, realistic <laughs> about living expenses though, maybe. I mean, you're not going to get your living expenses covered. You're probably going to borrow living expenses, right? Right. Okay, so you borrow, say, how much a year? I, I don't. Uh, I'm let's like let's say it would be about 000? sixty, which would end up about seven fifty a month. So it'd be twenty thousand twenty thousand a year would end up with a seven hundred fifty dollar per month 
Okay. Hmm. Seems low. Uh, well, yeah, it's low if it's, if that's only living expenses though. If you're living reasonably instead of, you know, being all fancy, like people like to do in law school sometimes. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. So education tax is looking at what percentage of your discretionary income are you looking to devote to your target debts? So a good range on this 30 is not a good place to be, uh, is like 10 to 15. So let's call it, let's call it 15%. Okay. All right, so now we save Wait, can you, Sorry, can you go over that again? What was that? So why are people putting in 15? So the uh, many personal finance experts recommend devoting no more than 15% of your income to uh, paying for your loans. That if you're borrowing more than that, that you're going to be overburdened. And oh. oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. All right, so then we click save results, and what we end up with is this report. So similar to the state chart that we clicked on earlier to get to Texas and North Carolina, this one mm-hmm. instead lets you click on multiple states. And it also adds the high-prestige job schools. Mm-hmm. And so what this does is it takes the list of 200 ABA-approved law schools and refines it down to the schools that are relevant to those interests, geographic and prestige-based interests. And then what it does is takes the inputs based off your job priorities and creates a, a custom ranking of sorts. It's called actually an index. And so your ideal school, based on your input, gives you a 1.00. And that means that's a school that meets your needs. Everything above exceeds your needs. Everything below is below your need. Oh, so you've got these ranked from worst to best. From, well, from best to worst, yes. I thought you said lower numbers are better. Um, no, no, no. Uh, lower above than 1. above 0. one is better. Below one is worse. Oh, one oh. is ideal. I see it. But I see this, the, you, at the top of the, the list here, you have the university of Chicago with an index of 1.35. So it's, it's way above, not necessarily way above, but it's above my needs. Right. At the same time, my, my chances of getting admitted are low. Right. Oh, yeah. so you want to get closer to one because that's taking into account debt. One, no, that this does not take into account debt. That's on another the other tab. This is just looking at your desires related to your job. I'm confused how one can be ideal, but higher than one is better. Uh, it's because it's in, it's explained a little bit here, but this is one of those things that we need to figure out how to better explain to people. Um, but the idea is that when a school meets your criteria, it gets a one. And when it doesn't, it goes below, and when it exceeds it, it goes above. Oh, so one is so there's like a minimum threshold or something like exactly, one is exactly, and then okay, I see. So it might make sense for us to choose a number like fifty as like the baseline, but the problem is that there's actually no upper bound on this, and so depending on what you input, you might end up with like a two point five versus a point one five for other schools. And so what this, but as, as you were describing before, you know, it, it helps you look at, you know, is this school going to meet my needs? Do I have, ch- then are, what are my chances of getting in? So we start to really start to see schools that are kind of, you know, in my, in my target zone, starting with probably Vanderbilt uh, and then working your way down. And then you end up with uh, schools you're going to have a high chance of getting into towards the bottom. But not meet your needs. Right. Or, you know, you might decide, 
all right, University of the Pacific, I really do want to work in California. In particular, I want to work in Northern California. I have a very high chance mm-hmm. of getting in. I'll probably get a good scholarship. Like, it's not perfect, but like maybe it is tolerable. And I'd rather come out with, you know, no debt and go to McGeorge or University of Pacific McGeorge versus, you know, paying full price for George Mason, which also doesn't quite meet your needs, even though it gets closer. What this does, though, is helps you start to balance out the information and, you know, make decisions instead of just saying, you know, this has got good job, job outcomes. I can get in here, like puts it on the same plane. Yeah. Wow, Kyle. So every year, a hundred and what twenty people, twenty thousand people take the LSAT. How many people have? How many people like use your site? So overall, we get tens of thousands of pre-law students on the site every year. Our wizard usages are far lower because we charge for it, and that's the problem. Uh, so we're probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand people. 750 people using the wizard. Um, mm. And I would rather see that number be 10 or 20,000, which is why we're going to mm-hmm. figure out other, other ways to keep the lights on than charging for it. Um, I wonder if you could do a Kickstarter or GoFundMe or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we've, we've tried and not really succeeded super well. If y'all want to create one for us and promote it, <laughs> we would love it. Um, also, if people want, they can... Uh, text law school to 44321 and donate there. Um, but yeah, so the, the other thing I want to show on this page is the finances tab, which looks at projecting scholarships out based off your numbers. And that's where those numbers come in, where you like, okay, I want this debt. So Chicago is way above your target debt, right? And you're probably not going to get a scholarship. If you do get in, you might uh, you might get a little bit of a scholarship because they're basically giving a scholarship to everyone. Um, but like at Columbia, you're just hopeless, not going to get any money. You're going to need a huge salary to, to meet the, the, your needs. Uh, but then once you start getting down further towards the schools you actually have a shot at, you start seeing how much scholarship you can anticipate and then how close you're going to actually get to your target. Hmm. Washington and Lee looks like it'll probably be a decent option uh, getting closer. It's still going to be way more expensive than you need or than you wanted. But what this does is makes you look more realistically at your goals, which might have you retaking the LSAT. And so you can go in and you can change your LSAT score and say, okay, what's this impact going to be on my likely scholarship? Yeah, sorry, Ben. 3.5 with a 167 when you want the high profile job in Virginia yeah. or California, you're just not going to get it done, Ben. You're going to have to retake the LSAT. Yeah. And so like, let's say I, you I really retake it. I really don't like where this is going. I'm just going to hop off. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to retake it. You got a 171 now. <laughs> Good job. And then here are your results. You're still not very likely to get into the top schools because you're GPA. Yeah, you is fucked still up in undergrad, Ben. You needed better grades. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. But your chances of all these other schools has gone up now. Um, and your chances of scholarship have likewise also gone up too. Yeah. So he's not, not to like, huh. cha- change the subject, but can, can we get out of the p- inside the paywall stuff? And I, I wanted to see, there was one tab about, I believe there's finances stuff that's outside just on the website that we never got to. Is that yes. right? 
That's correct. So back to UNC, here's the finances tab. So this is okay. on the UNC profile on the LST reports. So it starts off at the top, which is, you know, what's the published cost of attendance? This is sticker price, and it shows the tuition change over time. Uh, so this helps you with projecting out, you know, how, what's, how is your price going to change? Uh, you, you can expect it to roughly keep up with inflation uh, at UNC as of over the last five years. You scroll down a little bit, and you see um, that the average price, uh, or the um, discounting policies, basically. So I like that big number in, of here's how many people actually paid full price. Yep. And then it shows for those who have discounts, how's that breakdown? And there's another chart that looks at the same numbers in a slightly different way. Um, if this were a school that offered conditional scholarships, it would not say the school does not offer conditional scholarships. It would tell you what those uh, uh, what that actually looks like and how many people got the scholarships and how many people kept them. Um, and hey, then down can we here, go back to this number? It's pretty important. So we have this 35%, right, paid full price. Blah, blah, blah. I think people struggle with this kind of data, though, because they don't know where they would fit here. They struggle to say, hey, given my LSAT and GPA, what am I going to be in the 25th? Because it's not necessarily based on the 25th of your LSAT and GPA, right? It's 25th percent of those who got a scholarship. Well, so, right, exactly. So this, I mean, what this comes down to is um, about, a, about a third of people got this. So 12,000, so 22% got 22,000 or less, or 12,000 or less uh, scholarship. Uh, another, you know, fifth of the class got about 17,500. And then everyone else kind of congregates around the middle, right? Uh, you know, there's some gradations in there. Um and that's why that w the wizard, you know, why I, I wrote that algorithm because what it does is try to predict where you are based on your LSAT, your GPA, as well as whether mm -hmm. you're self-identified as an underrepresented minority. Uh, and that's why it's important for us to figure out how to make that free for everyone because it takes expertise to figure to to give that advice. It could be useful on this report too if it could pull in the LSAT and GPA. Yep. You know, and figure out some way to translate the 75th percentile LSAT to the 75th percentile scholarship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or, you know, what I would love is um, you have the LSAT GPA calculator, right? Which tells you your chances of getting mm -hmm. admitted based on those two numbers. If you, if you got rid of, not that you should get rid of it, but if you, if you had on your homepage LSAT GPA and then your, likely scholarship range for each school i feel like that would just make it really clear yeah. to people what they should be expecting yeah. when they're applying to that school because people are kind of trying to figure it out and you know the more savvy they are the more they're like wait a sec everybody yeah. in my range should be getting this but you have to get there in the first place and then once you get there you have to have the gumption to ask for it right but it's just like hey you put in these two numbers this is this is the money range you should be expecting over the last given the last six years of data or whatever, right. and then people are just emailing. It's like it's just a number, right? It's like, hey, I like that idea. I mean, they should ask for more, but yeah, I would love I love the simplicity of that, right? Because here, even even if you to break it out and say, hey, well, the the what this means for this LSAT score range, people still have to kind of like. No, there's a, there's math. a few leaps, and those leaps require information that most people don't have. They don't they yeah. don't know how the decisions are made. 
Um, like that's what that algorithm is supposed to do is look at how the decisions are made at schools and then try to use that to predict what it might be for someone based on historical data. Um, yeah. And it's like, it, it's, it is something that needs, needs to be made easier for them. And that's, again, why I keep coming back to, you know, people use the site, they, they don't have many criticisms, but like they should. Um, and that's one of them that I think is valid and worth figuring out how to, how to better address. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one other thing we do is we allow people to um, create their own custom worksheets to, to do this. So like if you're going to UNC, you come in here and you can say, okay, well, tuition's this this year. And then let's say, you know, room and board's 14, books four, other personal five. And it actually breaks everything out by that. And then scholarships. And then if you wanted to autofill based on previous year's data, so let's say 1.5% average, and let's say a 2% cost of living increase, it'll change the numbers. And you save it, and you go back to the school, and it shows you what your cost of attendance is going to be, how much debt you're going to have, mm. your monthly loan payment, which you can then hopefully start to use to look at the salary information and figure out, you know, am I going to make enough money to actually, you know, pay back those debts? Kyle, it feels like you have a lot of powerful tools here. It's just that it requires, like you said earlier, I think um, a high level of understanding of what you're looking for yeah. and, and how to even go back and forth between that data. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, figuring out how to simplify that goes to, better educating students, better taking them where they are and getting them to where we want them to be, and then also better educating their advisors, um, making making them aware of the tools and then actually doing trainings with them to help them understand not only the tools but um, other elements of the advising process. And that's one of our big projects right now is creating a new platform that is designed for pre-law students and their advisors that will... Hmm make all of this uh, a lot more accessible. Yeah. Well, we can kind of see why U.S. News and World Report ranking is winning, right? Because it's so fucking simple. It is. Just like, here's your number. What do you want? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's the challenge is like, if we just presented people with these profiles as the first thing they saw, it'd be a lot harder to ha- see them changing their behaviors. But because so many people, you know, do the state report functionality. Okay, we're going to Missouri. They do this, and they see this simple number, and then they start digging in. They actually, we, we see the, the, the impact. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, we, we have the survey data showing that when people have access and utilize this information, they don't use U.S. News. So it's a matter of getting more people to use it and explaining it better for those who maybe need that extra help on the front end. Any um, thoughts about the strengths and weaknesses of the above the law rankings? Yeah. So, I mean, one strength is that it's heavily focused on outcomes, um, whereas U.S. News focuses a lot more on inputs, whether it's resources or LSAT and GPA, uh, U.S. News uh, above the law is much more focused on the job picture and then the cost picture. Um, it is still an ordinal ranking, so it does not really help all that much for 
you know, the, the problem of choosing between 30 and 40. What, what that does, though, is give a decent indicator of the ranking of prestige in the profession. And, you know, I think there's better metrics for that. Uh, for example, sorting by the percentage employed in big law does a better job than above the law does at that. But at least it's the simplicity of it that lets you kind of look at that. But they, you know, they make a, a smart choice to only rank the top 50 schools because those are the only real schools that have you know, any real percentage of their class going to those high prestige jobs. But it's, it's actually probably still ranking too many schools for that purpose. Yeah, I agree. I, that, that's a thing I think that's a really important point that needs to be made these rankings really only matter for the super high prestige jobs and those super high prestige jobs really only go to the super high prestige schools. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you get down to, you know, the, well, this school's ranked 30th and this school's ranked 40th. What, what are you talking about? Where do you yeah. want to work? Where do you want to live? That there, you, <laughs> there's just no point comparing those two schools for one 30 and 40 virtually the same thing. Professor yeah. Ben Barton called those schools other, you know, it was just like, Hey, there's top 14 or there's top maybe 20 or whatever, but then there's just other, and there's no point ranking those schools against each other. Not only that, but geographically, if one of them's on the East coast and one of them's on the West coast, then what are you even doing? Why are you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one, one interesting statistic is that actually the top 20 schools each year, um, not by U.S. students ranking, but by job placement in big firms, actually account for between 50 and 55% of all big law jobs. Um, and if you were to factor in federal clerkships, that percentage would actually get even more distorted, uh, which goes to your very point, which is it's very those rankings are very good for the very top, but past that, you should be using other resources. And that's why we're hoping to provide those resources to, to help people make those better choices and be happier and have less debt. Kyle McEntee is the founder and executive director. Do I have that right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Of law school transparency. Um, Kyle, I think we're about out of time. How can people reach you? I mean, we've been all over lstreports.com. Is that right? Yep. So um, lawschooltransparency.com is our main website. LST Reports is our website for um, pre-law students. Uh, All of this is accessible from lawschooltransparency.com, of course. And then I think uh, I'd also like people to give a listen to our podcast, I Am The Law. Um, We're, I think, going to release 20 new episodes of this over the next few months. Um, People really like it. And uh, What do you do on the podcast? Uh, so the podcast uh, interviews lawyers from all around the country. Um, each each episode is a different lawyer, and we try to help people understand what law is actually like. At, at its heart, it's, it's journalism. So we ask difficult questions. We really pry and uh, make people uncomfortable sometimes, which is which is good because we we get uh, we get people to scratch below the surface. Do you ever have uh, people who didn't end up practicing law, or are these all like JD? required um the vast majority are jobs that require a law license but we do have some people in those so-called jd advantage jobs um you know we want to hear about their paths to doing it so we interviewed someone 
uh, who's a, a sports agent. Um, and, you know, it's not because that's a realistic goal. It's because he was the unicorn who managed to get through. Um, that episode should be coming out in the next five weeks. Um, Again, that's I Am The Law. I Am The Law. Yeah, you find it anywhere. You find podcasts, Spotify, um, <laughs> Apple Podcasts. Sounds you know. bold. Sounds <laughs> like someone, like a... a <laughs> Straight out of Judge Dredd, actually. Strong arm. I am the law. (laughs) You listen to me. (laughs) Does Judge Dredd have a JD? He does. He's a judge. (laughs) (laughs) Although not all judges have JDs. Really? I guess that's true. Yeah, there's elected positions of of uh, non-lawyer judges, which is crazy. But That does seem strange. I don't know how you would do that. Um, Anything else you want to shout out, Kyle? No. Um... If you have any rich uncles or aunts, let them know about us and help us out. <laughs> <laughs> good, good luck. Yeah, yeah. Well, we are, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, so it is tax deductible. So. Okay, cool. And, and that's, again, that's lawschooltransparency.com. I'm sure people, if they want to contribute to the cause, they can find a spot yeah, to do definitely. that there. So. Ben, any other questions before we... Uh, I, I feel like we're going to have to leave um, the other items on our agenda for next time uh, and wrap it up right there. Kyle, yeah, great guests. Thanks for uh, hanging out. Any personal social media? You People follow you anywhere? Um, I do have a... We have a Twitter account, LST Updates. I don't think we... We don't really ever tweet. Um, and then I've got a personal Twitter, KP McEntee. Um, I tweet mostly pol- political stuff. So, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm not, I'm not very active. Okay, uh, well, we will wrap it up there. Um, you can join the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook if you are so inclined. You can follow us at Thinking LSAT on social media everywhere. Uh, I'm at N Fox on Twitter. I've been using Twitter more and um, using it more focused for specifically LSAT stuff. Uh, LSAT and law school admissions stuff on Twitter. I'm at N Fox. Ben is at innovator Ben on Instagram. I think that's the best place to find Ben on social media. Uh, our yep. joint LSAT class is lsatdemon.com. We have live classes seven days a week. We also have uh, 24 hours a day of just the demon that you can do practice tests, practice sections, practice questions, and watch videos and read written explanations of uh, every LSAT question ever released at LSATdemon.com. Our tagline is don't pay for law school there, just as it is here. (laughs) The tagline everywhere is don't pay for law school. Um, ThinkingLSAT.com is the show website. If you want to subscribe to our newsletter, read our um, show notes there, subscribe to yeah the, the newsletter. The show notes come out automatically at thinkinglsat.com. Um, that was episode 255 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. Yeah.